Thanks for downloading the Sciatica podcast. I'm Tom Jessen, and today I spoke to Adam Dobson. Adam is, like me, a physiotherapist from the north of England, and like me, has a keen interest in spinal pain and sciatica. Adam and I chew the fat about assessment of sciatica and treatment of sciatica. I was trying to think of who would benefit most from listening to this podcast. I think it's probably going to be people who in that kind of intermediate stage. So you've already maybe researched uh, sciatica and spinal pain a little bit. You're aware of some of the differentials and you've already seen a few patients and are developing your way of assessing patients, but maybe struggling to put all the pieces together. There's a few things you're not so sure about. Um, maybe you're struggling with the big picture. Uh, and I think Adam does a really good job today of... Uh, showing us the big picture from his point of view, but also zooming in and giving us a few little clinical pearls, uh, a few things I hadn't heard certainly in this podcast. So that's who I think would benefit. Um, I've put some links in the newsletter for you to follow uh, to some of the papers and resources that Adam mentions. And the last thing to say is that the podcast is long, so I cut it in half. Uh, So you'll uh, hear it kind of fade out at the end um, and then we'll fade back in again in the next one and pick up where we left off. All right, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adam Dobson. podcast. I'm Tom Jessen and I'm here today with my mate Adam. You all right Adam? I'm very well thanks. Thanks for having me. And you're I guess you're in Middlesbrough today. You're at home are you? I am yes. Stock non tees technically. Oh yeah. sorry. Side. Is that like an no, important no, it's, uh, Um Not terribly <laughs> I, w- I would say. Um, it's still side, yeah. And I think Adam <laughs> is maybe um one of maybe two or three people on Twitter who are even more interested in sciatica than I am, or even more obsessed about with sciatica, although we could maybe argue about that. Have you ever had sciatica? Uh, yes, yes, I have, mm. yes. Two times I've, I've mm. probably had um, le- pain in both my legs that, that kind of felt that it was coming from my back, uh, kind of burning, searing pain from my back right down the backs of my legs. Um, both full recovered, both very painful, very distressing. Um, mm. No neurology, uh, from what I remember, just a, a lot of pain, just a mm. lot of burning pain into uh, my thighs and calves. Yeah, mm. Should have probably got it, got it checked out, really. Were you a physio at the time? I was training to be a physio. I was at university okay. um, and I couldn't climb stairs or anything yeah. like that. So, But I didn't really know what it was, actually. Yeah. Um, I'd... I'd, I'd I didn't really clue into what it was. There was just a lot of pain and yeah. it was kind of like, I was hoping it would go. Uh, yeah. And after a few weeks, it just, sl- and, and actually I think I, I hurt my back in the gym. I was doing some squats and I twisted and felt a bit of a thud in my back. And then the next day I had pain into both my legs. So mm. I think I probably do know why it was there, mm. but um, I didn't really put the links together. Yeah. But it was fine, fully recovered. Yeah. Uh, and um, nothing major really. That's similar to me because I was a physio student as well. And I I first got my sciatica when I was in the gym, actually deadlifting, probably a lot less than you were squatting, actually. and But enough to tw- tweak something. And at the time, I yeah. had no idea what it was either. 
I went to, um, we'd been doing like pain lectures at the time. And I went to see a physio, Rob Tyre, actually. That's the first time I met him. And he said, uh, and he said, what do you think it is? And I was like, central sensitization. <laughs> Cause I'd, I'd read that like, if you central sensitization means that your pain is spreading. So I thought maybe my back yeah. pain was like spreading down my, I don't know, but I had no, that's something I always remember. Cause I've seen loads of patients now with sciatica, but at the time, even though I was a physio student, I had no idea what was going on, mm. but, but I don't think that's where, cause you mentioned this before. Your, your interest in sciatica is partly because you had it, but also partly because you work in a specialist service now, don't you? Mm, you want to tell us a little yeah. bit about your, your work situation? Yeah, so I work part-time in a triage clinic. So um, I see a lot of sciatica in, in, in that clinic. All our referrals are from the GP. Um, so the, our patients are kind of funneled in from the GP. So um, we, I probably see a proportionately higher degree of sciatica interestingly than, than the next person would do um so we see a lot of sciatica a lot of um consistency a lot of um stenosis uh i, I wouldn't say that i had a massive interest in until i kind of got into back pain mm-hmm. um and and then it was kind of like sciatica kind of came for the ride just because that was kind of you know, you're in the same clinic um and then the other half of my time i, I i'm a residential I'm a lead of a residential program for patients with persistent back pain, which is cancelled currently. So that's more about rehab and and um, and all those kind of things. So it's a nice little blend. People might think that it seems very samey working in a mm. triage clinic, but actually the, there's lots of different aspects to it: um, the, the rehab side of it, the the medical side of it, um, and the interest in sciatica, and some other things that we'll come into. Mm. So, so yeah, so a little bit by accident that, that I kind of got into sciatica, mainly because I was interested in back-related problems. But my previous job, um, I wouldn't have really seen that much sciatica. Um, I would see back pain, mm. um, but not so much true. A bit of kind of neck-related arm pain, but not that much sciatica, really. Um, yeah. So I kind of become more interested at that point. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So... That's you mentioned triage. Why don't we start start at that point then with about approaching assessment of people with um sort of back related leg pain? Um, yeah. Is there any yeah. kind of maybe we need to narrow down the, the question? But are there, are there any kind of broad sort of points you'd make about assessment and how you go about that? Yeah. So I probably used um, if it'd be in my head or on paper like a loose classification system. Mm-hmm. So a way to kind of organize and arrange new and updated information and, and how it kind of sits with particular particular clinical entities. So patient from, information from the patient, their age, medications, medical history, symptomology, examination results, imaging results. So all of those kind of bits of information we could probably organize and, and um, kind of, you know, to help with our thinking a little bit. So I started to use a system that I developed from Anina. Mm. So, um, in I think it was that chapter that she did yes. in yeah. the Wheeler's chapter. Um, so, I've, yeah, brilliant. Uh, um, so, I've since broadened that out a little bit to include some additional. It, it's interesting when I've kind of looked at this kind of back-related leg pain thing that there's a whole bunch of additional things, masquerading things, um, and things that are truly back-related, maybe not musculoskeletal, um, that that we don't initially think of. 
Um, so it's a bit, you know, it's quite an interesting kind of exercise to kind of sit and, and look at what those things are. Um, so we can consider a breadth of things masquerade as differentials. Um, you know, you, you can't know something if you, you can't consider something if you don't know it exists. Mm. That, so that, that was kind of my thinking is, is that if you don't start broad in a kind of systems approach, um, you can't really know that something may be on the table, yeah. um, particularly from a, a medical perspective. And I don't think we should be kind of forgetting about that. Um, it's also quite useful um, from a kind of terminology perspective, particularly with the ridiculous stuff. Um, there's a lot of <laughs> variability in how we yeah. describe things. So uh, Anina's kind of um, her classification systems allows for some consensus yeah. on, on what things are, standardize it a little bit. So um, I'll probably split into five kind of yeah. key things. Uh, somatically referred pain, root syndromes, uh, vasculogenic or vascular kind of problems, uh, pelvic-related, truncular. Have you heard of that term before? Truncular. <laughs> truncular. So truncular is, it's kind of like the pelvic um, kind of sister to radicular, truncular pain. Truncular, oh, okay. it was a, an interesting term that kind of came up. Yeah, truncular yeah. pain, yeah. it was ridiculous pain. Got anyway, pain in me and, uh, yeah, yeah, your truncular's hurting. <laughs> and then the fifth thing would be limb pain or, or things that may be uh, a little bit non-specific and we can't quite kind of mm-hmm. conceptualize them too much. Um, and and uh, so we, we talked about ridiculous pain quite a lot, and, and you have Tom. So yeah. I, I thought we could maybe go through some of the other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, does that seem reasonable? Please do. Yeah. Um, so somatically referred pain. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that old chestnut. So yeah, so that, so that's the kind of the diffuse aching kind of nociceptive pain considered to be from tissues uh, of the back, so the, the the facets and the the joints and the hip maybe. You know, we're going to broaden that idea so it's not just back related, it's kind of pelvic related because in reality, we're often considering can the hip be a masquerader of pelvic pain and, and leg pain. I think it probably is. Uh, is it easy to <laughs> tease out sometimes? Not so much. So I, I was looking at the that early work from Kelgren because I know that mm-hmm. you were, <laughs> mm-hmm. you kind of looked at that from the 30s. Yeah. So those case studies are amazing, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, they're so candid. In, in how he yeah. describes things. So that was a collection of case studies looking at um, back pain, butt pain, leg pain. Essentially what he did is he, he identified saw bits in your in your back and your buttock, uh, and then he just injected them with local anesthetic and, mm. and, and saw what the response was, and he just kind of – it's just a whole load of case studies, really. Um, the, there was a study by McCall in the 70s, and they distended the facet joints. Um, to see where you go. I think that, you know, that that image where they've got pain moving down the hips and down mm-hmm. the leg, you know, that kind of familiar picture that you often see with facet pain. Mm-hmm. I think that probably comes from that paper, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, and then more recently, there was that paper by Leisha. So mm-hmm. you, you pronounce the name. Uh, they were looking at the hip joint, weren't they? So they yeah. injecting the hip with uh, local anesthetics, to see if it, if it had an effect on, on, on patients' leg pain, patients who were due to have hip replacements, I think. So um, 71% of patients had a reduction in buttock pain, 57% of pain, thigh pain, groin 55%, 16% lower leg 
actually. So, so I think all these kind of things, they, they demonstrate that leg pain can be somatic. I, I, I don't think that's particularly controversial a statement, to, to be honest. The issue with a lot of the papers that I was looking at, though, um, a lot of them suffer. They don't have very good control groups. They don't have large sample sizes. Um, in the, in the Leisha study, they all included patients who had 90% and above pain reduction. Mm. So they excluded all the, the other patients who, who, mm. who didn't have a profound response. I think it was a little bit interesting. Um, and certainly in, in, in real life, in, in my clinic, um, you know, patients are a little bit more complex. They have mechanical and non-mechanical features, pain in lots of different areas. Um, I see backs that hurt when you move the hips. I see mm. backs that hurt when they're on the feet. I see backs that hurt when you do straight leg raises. Um, and it, so if you kind of combine some of the, the real clinical kind of observations with, uh, let's say, a normal pelvic x-ray, you know, I think things become a little bit more less certain that diagnostically. Yeah. I think that then sometimes it's, it's kind of promoted. Um, on the other side, obviously, you've got the spondylarthritis and, and all those things that can give you both pain. But, I, you know, that's probably out of the scope of what we're kind of chatting about, really, Tom. Mm. What's your thoughts on that? No, it sounds about right to me. I think, um, as you say, I don't think it's too controversial that, um, you know, you can get somatic referred pain in the, in the leg. Um, and uh, I think, um, as you said, it tends to be that kind of classically diffuse sort of aching pain. Um, although I think, uh, in my opinion, you can never sort of, there's not really any one thing you can put too much, too much weight on. So mm. like uh, when I talk about it, I always, if you're trying to differentiate like somatic from true ridiculous, you know, we can, we can talk later about how important that is, but just if you're trying to do that, I don't think there's any sort of one thing that knocks it out of the park, like, oh, that's definitely it. So I always mm. talk about it being like a seesaw. So you, you kind of just add the the features. So if someone's kind of pain is a bit vague, then it goes on the somatic side. And if they've got some pins and needles, it goes on the ridiculous side. And then you yeah. kind of you kind of weigh it up while also remembering it, it could be both. Um, do, do you tend to see somatic as it's almost um, you reach that by excluding or looking for ridiculous thing? Um. That's a good question. I suppose um, I, I, I think I wouldn't have said it was like an exclusion process more as like a weighing up the two against each other type of thing. Mm. Um, I suppose you could call that a diagnosis of exclusion in another way. Like it, you could say in the, the other side of things like, well, if someone doesn't have these features of ridiculous pain, like if they don't have any neuro loss or any like the straight leg race isn't much to write home about if there's no kind of, neuro symptoms like pins and needles tingling and the pain is is not that sharp and severe then you could say well i can't really diagnose ridiculous pain it doesn't seem to be anything else so maybe you could mm -hmm. say it was somatic pain yeah yeah i think i would often um just describe what what i found so uh, if there was an absence of um you know hard neuro loss i, I would document that um and uh you know i would i would kind of say if there was any gain of function or uh, what my, I would just kind of detail my thoughts, really, and, and I think that, um, but not really kind of put my, you know, mm. definitively say it's not this. Um, 
Yeah. I've had, I mean, I've had some kind of atypical, ridiculous presentations that don't have really any um, kind of, you know, neuropathic qualities and and uh, our loss of neurological function. Um, but then, for whatever reason, they've had a scan and, and it showed up a, a whopping um, root compression um, mm. on that side. Um, so, yes, I have to kind of leave it open to change your mind a little bit, mm-hmm. I, I think, even when, it, you know, all the information would, would not kind of suggest, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What about... Um... Do you ever talk about sort of or do repeated movements that that type of assessment to see what happens to pain? Set with centralization. Yeah. And the, not, not particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably don't prescribe to that. I don't. I don't think yeah, it's, yeah. it's never really been in my kind of worldview mm-hmm. um, to kind of do those things. Um, you know, if the, if the pain is is, I probably wouldn't say that the pain is moving up the leg. Um, mm-hmm. more that they just it's less dominant in the leg and they feel it more in the back and that's probably a good sign overall with you know the prognosis I, I guess um, but that's probably the lack of leg pain rather than moving up you know yeah, yeah. In, in that kind of perspective mm-hmm. yeah yeah interesting and and you mentioned that like um, the hip in there as well which I think is I quite like the system that you're going for here because you're kind of in, including everything that could really be, you know, a feature. And um, so I wondered what your impression is of this because sometimes I say, well, nothing's really easy or straightforward, but if anything is, it's, it's probably ruling out the hip. Um, and maybe mm. you disagree with me, but I feel like um, we've got one of the last remaining special, special tests uh, the flexion, adduction, internal rotation is, I th- I think, I might, I might be wrong, pretty good at screening the hip joint itself. And then mm. our tests for GTPS are pretty good as well. They're pretty sensitive, so pretty good rollout yeah. tests. Um, I mean, I, I've always, you know, with the usual caveats about you can never be certain of anything, I've always kind of often quite, felt quietly confident about ruling out the hip. Or do you think I'm being a bit overconfident there? Um, I, I'm not so sure if it's the kind of patients that, that I see, yeah. um, but, but a lot of my patients are fairly complicated, but, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's a lot of patients with quite a lot of locations of pain and, um, a lot of persistency, um, you know, that, that kind of more typical, I've got the groin pain, mm-hmm. um, it hurts putting my shoes on, um, you know, I'm limping around that, that kind of pattern. I probably see less of that. So I, I, I don't know if it's just because of the setup of the clinic. Um, but, but yeah, what's it? That, that fader test, yeah, that, that, that I think there was a recent paper on it, wasn't it? Um, Raymond, I think it was. And um, so I certainly do that test. Um, and I, I'm looking for pain reproduction. And it's just another piece of information for me. Um, we have good, good ties with the MSK team. And, and mm-hmm. I would always kind of hold that in my mind. Mm. And, um, and and we have access to imaging in that direction. When the, when the scan comes back and it's pretty equivocal, <laughs> that, that that's when you're kind of like, oh, God, mm. it's, what's this really telling me? Um, mm. But we would have the MSK team maybe have a look at those people, AVN and all those kind of sinister things we, w- we want to be looking for, I guess. Mm. Um, but many patients, if you lay them down, um, you lay them down flat on the back. Backs don't really like laying down, Tom. Mm. Um, well, you, you'll 
know this. Um, and what do we do? We lay them down, <laughs> lay them down on a flat couch and um, moving a hip um, with a person with, with back or buttock pain mm. um, will strongly reproduce the hip, mm. the, the buttock pain very easily. So mm. I think that, that that just kind of muddies the water a little bit when you're then getting to that discrete kind of fair test bit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, well, they already really feel uncomfortable me putting them in that position. Um, you know, I'll sometimes do it in sitting, but I, I, I think that's less useful just to look at their hip rotation in, in sitting. But um, it'd certainly be a differential, but but I, I, I don't know what it is, but I think I, I don't know if I'm seeing something else that, that other people are. I, I don't really have too many light bulb moments where I'm yeah. kind of like, this is the bloody hip. Yeah. That's, yeah. um, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Fair enough. No, it's interesting. But I think I've, an- I've answered that. No, I think, but I think it's important. Like going back to what you said at the beginning, when you think about somatic referred pain, it's important to remember that we're not just talking about the structures, the spine, but also of the SIJ and the hip, and yeah. uh, as well. Um, I think the next thing on your list was root syndromes. Um, do you yeah. want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I'll probably come back to that and, sure, and talk yeah. about my new favorite topic, <laughs> uh, which is vascular masqueraders. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so we had uh, a chap called Neil Hopper, who's a, a brilliant surgeon, come and okay. do some kind of CPD with us recently. And it's kind of ignited a little bit of an interest mm-hmm. in kind of vascular masqueraders. And we, we have to be thinking about vascular things mm-hmm. when we get patients with back-related leg pain. So, you know, from a systems perspective, there's a couple of interesting, there's a couple of naughty, serious masqueraders um, that we, we really need to be thinking about from a vascular perspective with mm-hmm. a patient with leg pain. The first thing I would say, a few barn doors for you, Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one would be the, the patient with the five Ps. So the, these are kind of masquerading as, as maybe a sciatica or back-related leg pain, but we'll, get, we'll give them a go. So the patient who presents with uh, acute pain, severe pain in their leg at rest, um, they, they might be pulselessness. They might be pulseless when we test them with manual assessment. Hmm. Um, they might have a pale leg. The oft- patients often have mottled blue and purple hues. So it is not that kind of, you know, patient, people think of the leg just being completely white or something like that, um, which I don't think is in reality what they look like. Uh, a patient who has profound weakness in the leg, something called um, porchylothermia, which is the perishingly called leg. So if you've got a cluster of those things uh, and you would, you know, they, they could come into a, an FCP clinic, could come into the high street kind of physiotherapy clinic with leg pain. Um, that's almost certainly a vascular kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking like acute compartment syndrome, after surgery um, or an injury or some kind of occlusion um, or even like, um, like, uh, like critical ischemia with mm. peripheral vascular disease. Um, so, so those kind of five Ps, it's quite rare, of course, but I think that that certainly can look like leg pain. Um, another, another bando would be DVT, of course, acutely hot, painful, usually, <laughs> usually acutely hot, painful, swollen calf. You know, uh, patients who have been on long haul travel. I've seen a few of these in the clinic. Um, they, they've come from traveling somewhere and uh, they've got this this calf pain. They're not feeling too great. 
so there might be a medical history. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we need to be looking out for clots. Now, the, the main differential from a vascular perspective um, is, uh, oh, actually, before I get to that, the third big, big one is um, popliteal artery entrapment. Mm. Um, so it's, it's seen more in young people, actually. Um, and that can masquerade if, if um, so if you think about the anatomy of the popliteal artery running down the back of the knee, um, usually it would run straight down. Um, but sometimes people have anatomy where it goes under the medial gastro, gastro or under mm-hmm. the popliteal muscle. And over time, that can actually destroy, destroy the artery. Um, the, so from the case studies that, that I was looking at, it looks starkingly like sciatica, pain mm-hmm. in the calf, pins and needles, numbness. Mm. Uh, patients often have claudicating pain, so pain that is brought on with exertion and, it, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's better with, with rest. Um, in the clinic, uh, we definitely want to be looking at their pulses. Um, and there's something else that we can maybe come back to, the ankle brachial plexus mm. pressure index or the yeah. ABPI. Yeah. Um, you, you can kind of do some tests where you measure the knee straight um, and, um, and, and then you measure with a knee bent. And if the pulses or the ABPI is lower with the knee straight, that might kind of suggest that the popliteal artery is being compressed. So, so that, I don't think that's something that people often consider, actually, yeah. uh, with, with sciatica. So three naughty things there. Mm-hmm. And I could easily see how, especially the popliteal artery, um, well, anytime there's claudication, I think, I think we're quite familiar with um, uh, sort of neurogenic claudication symptoms from the spine um, as part of spinal stenosis. And I could imagine a lot of what you've just described being misattributed to the spine. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I think that um, just having those things in mind um, would, um, you know, you may save someone's leg, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, popliteal entrapment can be, it can be limb threatening, mm-hmm. actually. Um, so we don't want to be missing that uh, mm-hmm. if, if we can. Is that missed and is it easy to miss that, you know, as particularly we're doing telephone consultations, I'd be worried mm. about that actually. Um, you know, how are you going to clue into that? And, and sciatica is common in young people. Um, so I think it, it certainly needs to be on the differential and we need to be asking things, a pain at rest, um, the pallor of the leg um, and, and all those kind of things. Um, the main differential, like you said, Tom, is, is uh, between uh, spinal claudication associated with lumbar spinal stenosis and then vascular claudication associated with peripheral artery disease. Mm-hmm. So I've got a few stats for you. Yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> so you're going to be bored with this. So the prevalence um, in 50, 60-year-olds, about 3% okay. of, of peripheral artery disease. 60, 70s is about 5%. And in the 80s, it's about 20, 25%. So up to 25% of people over the age of 80 uh, will have peripheral artery disease. Now, that's not to say that it will be symptomatic. Uh, I think in actual fact, the majority of of, um, peripheral artery disease is symptomatic, or indeed, it's not reported because they they don't go to the GP. Mm -hmm. When I say symptomatic, they don't have claudication pain. Mm -hmm. It's technically diagnosed using that ABPI. Mm -hmm. So... um, so I think it's um, 
anything under 0 0.90 uh, is uh, considered to be diagnostic, mm -hmm. I guess, for, for that, but you may not have symptoms. So there's two big um, large epidemiology studies that looked at this. Um, and 90% of those um, with peripheral artery disease, 95% uh, even, also had at least one additional uh, cardiovascular risk factor. So mm. your heart disease, hyperlipidemia, high cholesterol, stroke. So it's not surprising that these things often form the risk factors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we want to be looking out for those things, but also smoking, uh, family history of heart disease, diabetes, renal failure, previous vascular interventions. So here's a staggering stat for you, Tom. Uh, one study found that 10 to 15% of those people diagnosed with peripheral artery disease who also had claudication died within five years to do with a cardiovascular problem. Okay, yeah. So they're, they're, there's a big affinity between yeah. this and other peripheral vascular um, cardiovascular problems. And I think it's, it's one of those things that is maybe kind of overlooked. Yeah, or, or, or seen as, as you know, many yeah. patients. Interestingly, they will have a diagnosis of this on their notes, but when you ask them, they won't even know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you, you're reminding me now of because um, you're saying like I, I don't know how often we we look out for this stuff, and um, you're reminding me of when I first picked up on this which is shortly after I graduated and I saw someone with peripheral artery disease who came in for his back pain, but basically he had back pain and a bit of sciatica and peripheral artery disease. Um, and it took me a little while to sort of work out what was going on. Um, and at the time I remember thinking like, how common is this? Um, because it seemed to mine sort of novice eye like this was kind of dr house type weird and wonderful stuff but then i realized actually it's reasonably common and yeah. some people who said that they work in poorer areas of the country said that they see these like a few every week like it's just really common um because this guy like smoked like three packs a day or something ridiculous like that as well um so i guess that's kind of your the background demographic that you're seeing is going to be a huge factor in in how you know what how many of these you're going to see. I think it's interesting what you said about um, the temperature changes as well, because I've been making a bit of a song and dance lately about how people with sciatica have actually have legs that are literally hotter or colder a lot of the time. Yeah. And that what you said made me think that maybe um, it, uh, that could be, especially if you're assessing someone over the phone and you're saying, does your leg feel a bit cold? Oh yeah, it does. Oh, I wouldn't want anyone to think that, what am I trying to say? That could be like a, a confusing point for people. Like if, if you hear that someone's got a cold leg or their leg feels a bit cold and you say, oh, well, Tom said in his newsletter that sciatic legs actually are cold. That's fine. <laughs> so the, I think that's interesting yeah. sort of yeah. bit to be cautious about, isn't it? And I'm, I'm a bit worried about that now that I've kind of um, put that message out there too much. But, but you're not incorrect, though, are you? Uh, no, I think no. it's just um, more of the, the complexity coming out there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I think it also depends on um, – I'm very careful not to prime patients when, I, when I, I, I would prefer a patient to kind of give me that information willingly through the history. Um, and um, that would maybe raise – if someone was telling me my leg is really cold um, without me kind of <laughs> – 
asking them if their leg was really cold. Um, yeah. <laughs> that would maybe be a bit more of a um, a worrisome sign, I think. Um, but but yeah, the, the, not, none of this is simple, is it? So, you know. Yeah. And so in terms of differentiating between spinal sort of claudication yeah. um, and peripheral artery disease, um, do you think there's any like key things there that we need to look out for? Or? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so with it's interesting because patients with uh, vascular claudication, um, they, they will often say that their pain is brought on very specifically at certain kind of walking distances. So mm-hmm. they'll kind of say, I can walk this many steps before my pain gets too bad or when my pain comes on um, and then it'll stop and it'll go off very quickly. Um, and that will be very, um, very predictable often. So, um, and and a lot of these patients, I mean, it's a bit more complicated because you could also have a back problem or indeed you could also have lumbar spinal stenosis. But many patients will say that they don't have any problems sitting no. or, or when they're not moving or moving around the house. Um, interestingly, going uphill seems to really aggravate a patient with peripheral, with claudication pain, vasculogenic pain. Mm. Um, when interestingly with lumbar spinal stenosis, that's often one of the alleviating things that we ask, isn't it? So mm-hmm. um, just leaning forward or stooping. Um, does that does that alleviate your pain or allow you to walk further? Or if you're in ASDA, mm-hmm. um, if you, you've got your arms on the trolley. Um, but it's interesting because many patients will actually give you that information if you allow shopping, shopping trolley. Yeah. So I'll say I don't know what it is, but you know, I, I, the only relief I get is leaning on a trolley. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that when when you find the information that way, um, you can maybe be more kind of clear on because they, they don't know what that means yeah often. yeah um so so that and, and there are kind of walking tests and and things that, that you can do um like a like a cycle test that you can imagine with um vasculogenic leg pain probably wouldn't change on a cycle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. compared to if you were walking and it, it probably shouldn't change with positions of your back mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh as well so so that, that's from a from a characteristic perspective is something that that you want to be looking out for. Um, But pain into the buttocks, pain into the thighs, uh, pain in the calves, um, you know, it's usually both legs actually Mm -hmm. uh, with vascular to some, one might be more painful than the other, but usually have bilateral symptoms, Mm -hmm. which if you're thinking a patient who's got bilateral leg symptoms, you're thinking this is a bit worrisome. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So you're probably going to be, uh, you would hope that that person would be triaged kind of appropriately and mm-hmm. would be raising some eyebrows. It's interesting. One thing you said in, I just, I don't want to miss this out because it made me chuckle, Tom. In your in your book, there's a saying that you, that you had, pain is the prayer of a nerve for healthy blood. Yeah. Uh, and I put maybe claudication pain yeah. associated with peripheral artery disease is the prayer of a muscle for healthy mm-hmm. blood. But because um, there is a lot of uh, a lot of the mechanisms are the same, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this kind of mismatch of demand uh, across the the kind of uh, blood membrane and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so it was interesting. Yeah, I'm going to quote you in the next one then. <laughs> Mine was a bit waffly, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's just interesting to see some of the kind of similarities yeah. between certain 
know hypoxic kind of nerve related problems yeah. that, that that we see and and then when it comes to the APBI mm. um so what what's that useful then is it like um i guess where's your threshold for referring to is it when you just really can't find it out yourself and you're really struggling or do you just refer everyone for these things because you you've got you've got to do them to make sure I, no i think that we need to do the basics well mm-hmm. so i think that a, a good history a good examination a, a good you know kind of observational kind of um you know is really important to this so before we've even got to those tests we want to be looking at our patients don't we mm. um we you know with peripheral artery disease, we want to be looking at the legs. Do they have mottled legs, scaly legs? Often they lack hair on the legs. Mm. Um, in ischemic cases, they might have things like ulcers and even gangrene. And there's something called sunset foot, which where the, the foot is bright red, um, which is um, seen in patients with peripheral artery disease. More generally, cardiovascular things, people's fingers. Is there any kind of stains around the fingers? white lines around the eyes, corneal arcus, it's called, um, which is um, to do with hyperlipidemia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another thing uh, that was quite interesting. I struggled to say this word, thalasma, which is yellow patches around the eyes. And actually, you do see that sometimes, don't you? Mm. Those, those little blotchy bits around the eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's to do with high cholesterol. Um, so that might be kind of cluing into kind of cardiovascular problems. Um, but but the, Definitely want to be looking at the pulses, so that the feet pulses, uh, the pedal pulses, um, probably the femoral pulse. Um, we want to be seeing if they're present or not. The ABPPI, I think that um, if done correctly, can be a, another piece of information. Mm. So, so amongst all those other bits of information, mm-hmm. I think that... Um, if we don't have the resources or we don't feel comfortable doing it, it's one of those things that it's very easy to do, but it's only easy to do if you know how to do it mm-hmm. and you 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 can in, interpret that well. Um, so I'll just kind of go through that then. So what you yeah. basically do is you take the blood pressure of uh, of the brachial artery, so so in your both of your arms, left and right arm, the systolic um, BP. You need a manual cuff, and then you would need a, a Doppler machine. Um, so you would take the systolic blood pressure above the arms, and then you would take the um, two pedal, you put it around the ankle, mm-hmm. and you do the same with the two pulses um, of the ankle. And what you basically do is you just divide the, um, I think it's the highest one in the ankle by the highest one in, in either left or right arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you compare that to kind of you do a little calculation and you compare it to a given kind of chart. And if it's under 0.90, then that person almost certainly, if you've done it properly, almost certainly has poor uh, kind of blood flow through, through those vessels. Mm. If it's over that, the, there's quite a lot of caveats um, to how you interpret that. But, but I think I, I've, I've done a little bit of um, a Word document for that, if you want me to share that with you. Yeah, please do. That'd be great. Um, so it's one of those things that if you know how to do it, it's, it can be useful. Um, but I don't, I don't think anyone would be saying, don't, don't send that person off to vascular or have the GP refer them to vascular um, if you've not done that. Mm-hmm. I, I'd go that far. Mm. Do you do that test yourself or does someone else do that for you? 
So, so I would, um, we don't really have uh, a Doppler <laughs> right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would be asking the GP yeah. currently, but I would I'd say maybe, maybe you could check this out. Um, and, um, and then I'll, I'll liaise with the GP, but mm-hmm. absolutely we can be looking at the pulses. And I think if you don't have a pulse, you don't have a pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is maybe a reason to be looking at this further. I think if, if you've got the right demographic, mm-hmm. um, and you've got a person who you're suspecting, um, they may have lumbar spinal stenosis or maybe they don't. I so definitely be looking at the pulses, which I don't think are routinely done. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, I suppose I'm curious in your experience, and again with your the particular kinds of people that you see, um, how uh, common is it that you kind of that you're alerted? So as you say, there's certain things you'll do routinely, and then if you have a particular suspicion, then you'll go through everything with care and, and you know, really investigate it. Uh, how often is it that you think, oh, I'm, I'm worried that this person might have peripheral artery disease? You know, is that something that maybe once a month someone will come in, or is it something more regularly for you? Yeah, it's definitely on my radar. Um, I'll probably say a few patients a week. Uh, okay. that I'd at least be thinking about it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so just if you're in a certain age group and you've got pain into your legs, I think if it, if it's seemingly a barn door, it's a mm-hmm. barn door, isn't it? You know, and I think you've got to lean into, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like mm-hmm. a duck, um, it's probably a duck. Um, but but I'd always be thinking about that and I, and I would, would always be kind of um, mentioning that as a differential to the GP. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we need to be looking at these things in tandem, um, because obviously patients can um, have both. Uh, yeah. So if if it's symptomatic or not is a different thing. Um, but but it, it's definitely it's definitely up there for me with my population. Yeah. And you mentioned the, specifically the popliteal artery. That seems like a much rarer occurrence, but so, so just something that's so important that even though it is rare, we need to be thinking about it. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Is there anything else you want to mention there about the peripheral artery disease, or do you want to move on to maybe talking about the neuropathic type symptoms? We'll, we'll move on. I'll probably, um, probably made no sense at all, Tom, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get that on Twitter. We'll ask any further questions on that. I think you made, I think you made a lot of sense and it's, you know, it's always good to hear. I think there's an infographic about this stuff, like the BMJ infographic. You you probably know you've seen it, and but I think it's really good to hear someone who actually does this sort of day in day out as the like the main thing of their caseload. To hear your perspective on how you think these through is really interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think it's easy. Um, I, I, I'm yet to see an absolute. I think I've probably seen one or two absolute barn doors um, mm. where they they almost certainly have. Um, they almost certainly have vascular claudication. Um, I would hope that, I mean, our GPs, uh, GPs are brilliant at this stuff mm. in, in, the, in the main. So um, many of these patients, um, they're, they're kind of maybe being considered from that perspective already. Um, or they're on statins or they have some kind of cardiovascular profile. Um, and um, so, and I guess I'm just kind of a second opinion mm-hmm. kind of guy who, who's, um, but I, I maybe only had one or two where it's absolute bar- bandor, but I've certainly have 
many patients through the week where I'm considering it. And it's, mm-hmm. and some of those patients will have both, both kind of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we, we, we often don't refer people to vascular, do we? I don't think yeah, physios are, um, I could be wrong, but um, we, we often don't talk about vascular things that much in the mm-hmm. lower lip, I don't think, um, particularly as a differential and, and that kind of referral route or pathway. to It doesn't exist within our pathway, actually, okay. mm-hmm. um, naturally. So, so we, we, we would move them back to the GP, mm-hmm. but maybe mm-hmm. we need to look at that. You know? mm-hmm. Interesting. What's next? Do you want to move on to maybe the, the neuropathic topic? So I just want to touch on our our both of our most favourite area, Tom, <laughs> um, just on the differential, which is uh, the mononeuropathies. Yes, uh, <laughs> these are very so confusing. They, very very confusing. Yeah, yeah. pelvic and lower back <laughs> kind of um, masquerading neuropathies. So mm-hmm. there's probably a few back related or masquerading that are a little bit easier to tease out. Um, so the femoral neuropathy, which is generally more weakness and numbness than it is pain, I have to say. The moralgia parasthetica, the mm. lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, um, they can present quite specifically perineal neuropathy, mm-hmm. which is often a differential for an L5 radiculopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the, all these things like tarsal tunnels. Um, and then the last thing I would say that maybe have a clear-ish presentation um, is sciatic neuropathy, so the mm. kind of plexopathy. So very, very rare, it would seem. But the, the patients who've had trauma to the buttock um, or patients who've uh, ulcers or patients who've had a hip replacement or some kind of traumatic operation mm. in and around the pelvis. Um, so sciatic neuropathy, I mean, it's so many differing things tied into the poor sciatic nerve, isn't it? But uh, sciatic neuropathy or sciatic injury um, can certainly kind of present with pain and weakness in in the leg. So when they've got particular sensory changes, motor loss, there's a nice paper by a chap called Bowley, 2018. Um, Maybe have a look at that. And he Mm -hmm. nicely goes through these um, three or four kind of more accepted, shall we say, uh, neuropathies in and around the pelvis that present Mm -hmm. in the leg. Um, Moving on from that, we've got things like pudendal neuropathy yeah. uh, and even more contentious um, kind of neuralgias, I guess, the clineal group, the, in, the inguinal group yeah. uh, is another one. Um, and then your, your favourite, obviously, your, your deep your pain <laughs> syndromes. On a review of the literature, yeah. uh, it's pretty sparse it, yeah. across very inconsistent reports tends to be mainly case studies, surgical studies, cadaveric work, anecdotal, very mm-hmm. inconsistent with descriptions and assessments, mm-hmm. um, palsies, neuropathies, neurologies. It seems to be truncular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Truncular pain. First appearance for truncular. Yep. Yeah. But what I'd probably be, be looking out for mainly, I think, uh, pelvic injuries, any recent surgeries, traumatic pregnancy, period of immobility, repeated loading on the buttock cycling mm-hmm. um genital pain buttock pain all those things i think in practice i'd want to be making sure that the sit there's no serious problem or any organic issue mm-hmm. in and around the bladder 
mm-hmm. and, the, and the backside to the bladder and the bowel, you know, kind of uh, cancers and, and those kind of things. Um, but beyond that, a, a lot of these things seem to just be kind of clinical diagnoses or mm-hmm. it just seems to be, particularly with the latter kind of ones, it, there's no accepted kind of way to assess for these. And I'm not so sure it really changes how you manage it a lot of the time, Tom. Mm. What's your yeah. thoughts? They're diff- different, aren't they? Sorry, difficult. Because I think um, sometimes I think of it in terms of uh, like the, some people are lumpers and some people are splitters. So, so people who are lumpers, they tend to kind of lump things together. So like the ultimate lumper is lumping term is non-specific low back pain, right? It's like, well, we don't really know the difference between all these things. There's probably different things going on, but we don't really know and it doesn't make much difference. So we can just lump them together. And then the splitters are the people who like to split things up and say, well, you know, there's 16 different things that can go wrong in the back. And then there's, you know, seven different entrapment neuropathies that can, you know. And so I think you and I both come from the same part of the world, the same sort of services we've worked in, which I think I would characterize them as like lumping services. Like, we're, you know, we're, we're quite happy to kind of um, play the averages. You know, we're, we're happy to say, to lump things together and say that, you know, on average, it's probably the right thing to do. On average, we can't really distinguish between these things. And on average, you're not really going to treat them differently. So on average, most people will get better if we kind of lump them together. And I wonder if that's like a feature of being part of the, maybe part of the culture in the NHS or, you know, there's something. But I think, so I've never really worked in a, a service where whether someone has a clunial nerve entrapment is a going concern. And but my kind of vague impression is that here in America, although I don't practice here yet, but here in America, it might be, particularly in more specialist services, they might be more splitters. So they, they, they want to split things up and identify whether, you know, someone has that clunial nerve entrapment or, you know, and, and then they'd probably be able to tell you that there's a specific sort of injection that they do but as you say, when you look in the literature, none of that has come, has sort of emerged in the literature in terms of trials and systematic reviews. So when we look at it from our perspective and we're trying to look, use the literature to understand this stuff, it's like the literature is a bit crap. But that's just because I think that doesn't mean that the, 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 the people who are splitting these things up are, are deluded or wrong. It's just mm-hmm. that there's not that many of them and there's not that many patients and there's not that much money. So there's not that much literature on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I would say that with these things that they're, they're all plausible, aren't they? Yeah. There is a, a certain level of plausibility to a lot of these pelvic um, neuralgias, let's call it that. Um, mm. but, but I think how we tease these things, you know, that our patient's problem they don't, they come in, the problem doesn't have to be easy for us. You know, mm-hmm. the, these things are not, they're, they're not designed, they're not, they don't present in a way that for our ease of, of <laughs> concern, you know, so that, you know, patients often have mixed presentations, you know, complicated. It can be hard to, to attach meaningful diagnosis unless it's a barn door kind of thing mm. but but i think there's a certain level of plausibility with them all and I, I keep an open mind um to these things and and i'm happy if 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 
a paper came along and said, look, if we injected, this is what they look like and this is how we test it. And when you inject them, it's profoundly beneficial. Mm-hmm. I'd be more than happy to get on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I just find it, I, I just don't know if I can trust my instincts on a lot of these things because mm-hmm. there's so much overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not, like I said, there's not much to go on in the research, really. So you, you're kind of leaning on the the expertise sometimes of uh, the expert diagnos- diagnostician or whatever the word is. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they've got their own biases and, yep. and um, to, to kind of to work with. I think the other thing is, um, is this kind of idea of we've got these kind of artificial neurophysiological constructs doing so we like to split things into nociceptive pain and nociplastic pain and mm-hmm. peripheral sensitization and central sensitization and all these things but i think in in clinic they're, they're often quite artificial mm-hmm. um and um and there's no accepted assessment of centralized sensitization clinic mm-hmm. that, that you can use uh, and equally i think derek griffin was on about it today in terms of uh, many peripherally dominant nociceptive problems can present with pain all the time and pain that is disproportionate and, mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. these things. So when you get real patients who have all of these additional um, presentations and, and behaviors of the pain, it becomes very difficult to, to then be saying kind of like, well, it's, it's this clinical or, mm-hmm. over here mm-hmm. uh, and we do this very exacting thing. Um, I mean, we, we don't have access to any of these injections in the clinic. Um, we yeah. can refer them to painting, but it's a pretty long waiting list. Yeah. Um, and what we're going to do with that patient in the meantime, they're suffering. Yeah. 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 Um, so I would consider if there's any dangerous stuff. Um, I want to be testing neurologically. Um, I want to be thinking about the nature of the prognosis, the patient's perspective, and all those things that we haven't touched on today. Mm-hmm. And then things that are modifiable. Um, but, but equally, these things are, are plausible, aren't they? Uh, the pudendal. Um, kind of neuropathy in particular. Uh, did a bit of reading into that. A couple of discussions on Twitter um, can be very, very disabling. Buttock mm. pain, anus pain, um, can't sit down, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, can't, can't walk, and all these things. So, yeah, I think they probably are out there, but it's how we, we distinguish between them and what really does it change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'll I'll defer to you, Adam. Because last last two times I tried to guide this conversation, you refused uh, <laughs> to go where I wanted to. Uh, so, what do you want to uh, talk about next? Well, <laughs> don't, don't say that. Now, I think you <laughs> wanted to talk about neuropathic pain, didn't you, Tom? I did. If you're happy to, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Um, this is, I go backwards and forwards on this, and it's so interesting. <laughs> I'm writing a a, a, a I'm supposed I'm not actually doing it I should be but I'm supposed to be writing the textbook chapter about neuropathic pain and um, I go backwards and forwards because it's so interesting it seems to be very different